The problem is we often just don't discover our <laughs> inherent awesomeness. Welcome to a second chance. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio, stay tuned and get in tune with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Hey everybody, welcome back to a second chance podcast. Today's episode is with Bruce Van Horn. And before we get to it, I just wanted to share something very honest with you. When I sent Bruce the interview request, I wanted to speak with him about mindfulness. I thought since it's something new I'm learning, and he had sent out an email about it, he would be the perfect guest to have on the show to teach us all what we need to know to start using mindfulness in our lives. And this is a very good opportunity to demonstrate that everybody has their problems, everybody has struggles, and I keep looking to people and thinking, you know what, this person has such a great life, they must not have any problems. And I keep surprising myself, because in the first five or ten minutes that I talked with Bruce before we started recording the show, I found out that he's a single dad, raising his boys on his own, he's a coach, and he had a cancer scare. And that cancer scare made it hard to keep on working and made it hard to be a single parent. But Bruce looks at things just from such an inspiring light. And even though there are you know, struggles and challenges, he found his way through and he got better. And he has a good relationship with his boys and he's continuing to coach. He's writing a book. And just recently he ran the Boston Marathon, which is such a dream of mine. It's something that I would just love to do. So I hope that you get something from this interview and it touches your heart, even if just a little bit as much as it touched mine. And it's just so great for me to see that there's people out there that have been through struggles and been through challenges and that they're still able to do such great work and make an impact in our community. Much love to you all. Here is Bruce Van Horn. Welcome to a Second Chance podcast, Bruce Van Horn. I'm so excited to introduce you to everybody today and share your story. Thank you for being here. It is my pleasure. Could I ask you to start with just a little bit of an overview of what you do today and just a little bit of your path? Oh, wow. And you like to keep your shows under four or five hours? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. we have had a few sequels. Okay. Well, no. There is, what I like to say is that there is nothing inherently special about me that isn't also inherently special about every person on the planet. The problem is we often just don't discover our <laughs> inherent awesomeness. Um, I spent the, uh, the bulk of my adult life as a typical American male who thought, and, and it's not, I, I recognize it's not uniquely a male experience, but firmly bought into the, uh, the deceptive, um, uh, I really love uh, the way Don Miguel Ruiz, uh, describes it in his book, The Four Agreements. I, the way we are domesticated. Okay, just like we, we train a dog, you know, our, our dogs are domesticated. We as people are domesticated. Um, anyway, I bought into the lie that happiness comes from outside. It, it comes from approval from people that we want approval from. 
it comes from material possessions. It comes from wealth. Um, for men, it came from, you know, for me, I, I needed to be a strong provider for my family, you know, so that meant, you know, wherever possible, I had to constantly be upgrading to the, the bigger house, the nicer house, the, the nicer car. We have to put our kids in private schools, you know, because if I'm not doing that, then I'm not a good provider. I, in the process of trying to do that, uh, I wound up filing bankruptcy, tw- not once, twice. Um, I started my own business um, in the 80s when I was in my late 20s, and um, that went miserably. And then in the process of trying to rebuild all of that, you know, I, I was never terribly successful financially again. Uh, my wife and I, and, and we can go a little bit there if if you like, but my marriage was difficult from day one um, for a variety of reasons. We got married, first of all, I I think for the wrong reasons. I'm not saying that that we didn't love each other, but there was always an unhealthy quality to our relationship. And uh, we had our first child late by most standards. I was 37 when my... uh, no, I was, I, I, yeah, I was 36 when my oldest was born. And then, um, then we had a daughter, and she tragically passed away. And then three years later, we had our, what is now my youngest son. So I now have two boys. Uh, they're six years apart. They're currently 18 and 12, and I have 100% sole custody of them through a, uh, that's another long story, several episodes in and of, of itself, but I, I came to my mid-40s, uh, 42 years old, um, absolutely hating every single day of my life. I, I had zero fulfillment. I felt like a failure. I had wound up filing bankruptcy yet again because we were underinsured because of um, my daughter's death. We had just hundreds of thousands of dollars of medical debt. Um, her total expenses were, were in excess of a million, but, but our share of it was, um, was several hundred thousand, which I just had no way of, of digging out from under that. Many of our, our doctors and hospitals um, forgave a, a tremendous amount of the debt, but, um, mm-hmm. but there were some who, who didn't. And so I, I filed bankruptcy yet again. So I was just a miserable person. And I had just sort of adopted the mindset that, you know, at, at this point, I'm in my mid-40s. Um, yeah, pretty much from here, life sucks and then you die. And, yeah. you know, I was just not a happy person to be around. I had some, some friends, uh, what friends I had left that I hadn't alienated just because of my negative outlook on life. I was a pessimistic person, no fun to be around. You know, they affectionately called me Eeyore you know, from, from uh-huh. Winnie the Pooh. I was just a, a down person. And all of that changed. Uh, well, I was at the point, you know, again, you, you and I spoke very briefly at the beginning. That there are no coincidences. There are no accidents. Everything in our life unfolds exactly for a plan. Now, I understand that now a lot more than I was willing to understand it then because back then if you said, well, everything that is going through your life has a plan, I would have been pretty upset with the maker of the plan. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, and some people are, are stuck there. Yet, um, 
I was at that place where I was either I either needed to end my life or I needed to, needed to change my life. And you know, in order to change it, I had to to at least do some radical things. And so I, I chose change, but I chose change because of a really weird event that happened in my life. Um, my older brother, he's 16 months older than I am, and you know, so I was. 42, he would have been 43, you know, he might, might actually have been 44 at that point. He came, I live in Richmond, Virginia. He came to Richmond to run the Richmond Marathon. And, you know, so I took my seven year old, uh, yeah, I think he was either seven or eight then. Um, we went downtown to watch the marathon and, and that was boring. <laughs> um, and we came back. And had dinner, and, and over dinner, my older brother said to me, um, hey, Bruce, you should do this. I said, I should do what? He said, you should run marathons. And I laughed at the man. I said, no, I should not do this. And, you know, I, I said, first of all, I work from home and have worked from home for many years. I live in an amazing community Um where everything that I want and most of everything I need is within a five-minute drive. So I don't even like to drive 26.2 miles unless I'm going on vacation. I'm not going to (laughs) run 26 miles. And Now, my brother never intended to be the life-changing motivational speaker. He, He... he literally thought that I should, that I might enjoy the process of running a training for a marathon. And he said something that changed my life. He said, Bruce, the hardest part about running a marathon is making the decision to try it. Yeah, you know, I, I laughed at him still. I was like, yeah, right. You know, I'm thinking the hardest part about running a marathon is the actual running of the marathon. But he went home to Durham, North Carolina, where he was living at the time. And I let those words sort of sit in my subconscious and they gnawed at me for a couple weeks and I I didn't sleep well for a a couple weeks. There was just something that I knew was going on in my life and I couldn't quite put a finger on it. And I did at least decide, well, if my older brother can run marathons, um, well, I wasn't fat by any means. I was absolutely out of shape and I was overweight. I was probably 20 pounds overweight. Um, but I, I knew that, you know, just riding bikes with my kids, 10 minutes later, I'm saying, wait a minute, Dad, let Daddy catch his breath. So I decided that I could at least, mm-hmm. the first change that I could make in my life was to try to get back in shape and do some things physically. So I joined the YMCA and started going there, and I, I set a goal of, of being able, I wanted to be able to jog not run, just jog one mile on a treadmill without walking. I did not think I would ever achieve that goal. I uh, it, it took me over a month of going a couple times a week, and I got so frustrated, but there was just something in me that said, just keep trying it, keep going, don't give up. And the day I was able to run run one mile on the treadmill, a jog one mile, um, something in me snapped. And less than a week later, I ran two miles on the treadmill. And then I ran a 5K in our neighborhood. And then a a month or so later, I, I ran in a 10K. And 
then my voice, my brother's voices came back to me and I said, you know what? I'm going to do it. I'm going to train for a marathon. And so less than a year later, I ran the Richmond Marathon in November of 2006. I ran it with my brother who came back to run with me. I beat him um, quite, quite handsomely. Oh, that's amazing. I beat him by over 45 <laughs> minutes, I think. Changing my physical health saved my life. And, and running the marathon changed my life because in the process of that, you know, I used to be the guy who had all the problems. You know, I, you, you, you know people like me who you know, they're no fun to be around because all they're going to talk about is what's wrong in the world, what's wrong with, you know, and I was a victim and I blamed everybody. I blamed the government. I blamed you know, you know, whatever. I I certainly wasn't responsible for filing bankruptcy two times. My marriage was was stressful. I had all of these excuses. I had all of these problems. I had finance problems. I had relationship problems. I had um, being in a job I didn't like problem. Um, I had an overweight and out of shape problem. And it occurred to me that I didn't have any of those problems. I only had one problem. I had a thinking yeah. problem. I had an attitude problem. Yeah. And you can't run. Uh, a marathon runner cannot run a marathon with any type of negative self-talk. You've, that's the first thing that's got to change. And, and so I learned that running marathons is indeed 90% mental. You know, it's only 10% physical. Because if you can get the mind right, the mind will tell the body what to do, and the body will say, yes, sir, or yes, ma'am. But it's all mental. And so I I literally, um, you know, while there have been many people who have said it, you know, everywhere from Dale Carnegie to Napoleon Hill and and more in in contemporary um, circles of people like Dr. Wayne Dyer and Jack Canfield, what they preach is that you can change your life just by changing your thoughts. And, and I decided to try it. So I figured, well, if I could change my thoughts about my body, could I change my thoughts about my finances? Could I change it about all these other things? But what I really, and, and the only changes that really dramatically occurred didn't occur until after I changed my thoughts about me and my self-worth and Mm -hmm. my self-esteem and really took 100% responsibility for everything that was either in or not in my life. Everything that had happened in my past, whether it was or not, you know, I, I, some people will say, well, Bruce, how can you claim 100% responsibility for your daughter dying? Well, I can't, mm-hmm. but I am 100% responsible for the story I tell myself about my daughter dying. You know, and so, so that, mm-hmm. that's, that's an answer. That's, that's where I am. That's sort of who I am. And my life has just sort of taken this trajectory that when I started talking to people about the changes that I was making in my life and people started seeing the changes that was happening in my, were happening in my life. Um, 
people started asking me more and more questions. I started writing about it. I had a gentleman who said, Bruce, I want you to be my life coach and teach me how to do what you've done. I had never even heard the phrase life coach Mm -hmm. before, but for the last five years, I've been a professional (laughs) life coach. It just sort of morphed into what I do. When I started running, I started at the YMCA as well. I love the YMCA. On a treadmill, same thing, trying to just get one kilometer. And uh, I'd realized that I had problems with my thinking once I got to 10K. Because if you run 10K in this continuous loop of negativity, it's not fun. You can't do it. Yeah. So you have some very, very good pointers there. But you, you want to share your good news. I was really excited when I seen your post about what you've done recently in the running community. Oh, well, I just, um, the, the last year has been, um, has been the most challenging year of my life. And had I faced the experiences that I've experienced in the last year, had I ex- faced those experiences prior to, to my transformation, um, I would not be here today. I would have easily have committed suicide. And so in the last year, I've, uh, I've battled severe cancer. I've gotten divorced. Um, you know, yeah. and those, those are two biggies, right? <laughs> um, you know, so, so in the process, yeah, so in February of 2014, uh, I had just turned 50 years old. Um, got a call I and and I was at the top of my game I was running strong my life coaching business was just going better than I thought it would ever go I was in the process of wow. writing not one but three books um, my uh, my blog was popular you know Twitter is, is that's another story my Twitter feed is just crazy I have no idea I've got 350,000 uh-huh. Twitter followers and I have no idea where they came from but but that's fun um, but then my doctor called me and he said Bruce we got bad news um, you've got advanced mm-hmm. prostate cancer and and we need to do something about it immediately and so I wound up in April having um, significant mm. abdominal surgery that wow. I was already stage Is this last four. year? Um, yeah, April 7th of 2014, um, I had my surgery. And there was a complication during the surgery. <laughs> Nothing's ever easy, right? Um, but everything, everything is perfect. Um, so I, I don't want to leave it with a negative phrase there. But um, I had an anatomic anomaly that most men do not have. And so normally uh, removing a man's prostate is a fairly easy operation. You know, it's normally about an hour. Even the type of surgery that I had, which is what's called a a full um, radical retropubic prostatectomy. And so I'm I'm 30 staples from belly button to pubic bone. Um, you know, so separate, but, you know, kind of like ladies yeah. having a, a C-section, um, other than the cutting of the skin, okay. it's a bloodless surgery. Um, so they don't even, you know, they don't have you bank blood ahead of time. They don't order extra units of blood. Um, and it's normally an hour and a half surgery. You, you, you do it first thing in the morning. You spend that day in the hospital. And, you know, then that night and then depending on how well or how quickly you can get up and walk down the hall the the next day, they may discharge you that day or you might spend an additional night in the hospital. 
Um, my surgery was four and a half hours long. Um, and yeah, so my, my nurses said that when the doctor cut me open and moved the muscles around to where he could see my prostate, um, he just said, oh, and there was an expletive there that you know, we don't need to put on your podcast. Um, yeah, so we won't, I won't share you all the, those, those, the gory details, but, um, he could not perform the surgery without I, – I had a huge bundle of blood vessels that were surrounding my prostate. And he had to uh, – a doctor has to do one of two things. Um, doctors hate to operate in blood. So they normally would have just cauterized all of the blood vessels and been done with it. But in, in prostate surgery um, – there are are two goals, uh, especially at 50 years old. I'm I'm still a very very young, virile man. Okay, <laughs> that may sound weird, but um, in in prostate surgery we have two goals. First and foremost, we, uh, we we get all of the cancer and we remove the prostate. That's goal one. Goal two is um, the prostate is surrounded by a bundle of nerves. Okay, that are 100% responsible for ah. male functioning. Okay, so uh, so so all all male erectile function comes from the nerves that are wrapped around okay. the prostate gland. And so, goal number two is let's not damage those nerves. So um, there's no way you can cauterize blood vessels that are intertwined with the very mm -hmm. nerves we're trying to protect. So I absolutely love and respect my doctor. He could have just said, well, we're going for goal one. Goal two just isn't going to happen. And he mm. could have just cut everything and been done with it. But he said, no, I promised Bruce we'd do goal two, too. So he took four and a half hours. He had to wow. cut each blood vessel and let me bleed. And so I wound up losing 70% of my blood on the operating table and there was one point where the anesthesiologist um, was worried they were going to lose me. My blood pressure was dangerously low. Anyway, um, yeah, so anyway, I, I went through cancer surgery. The recovery process was much, 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 much longer and more difficult than it was supposed to have been because of the blood loss. Um, but uh, I think maybe what you're alluding to is the uh, the big victory is that exactly one year after my surgery, I ran the Boston Marathon. We need to put an applause here. Like, that is just amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was so much fun. Um, that I, I had mentioned on my show that running the Boston Marathon was a bucket list goal of mine. And one of uh, my listeners and Twitter followers was a guy named David Brown, who works for the Forsyth Institute in Boston. And he had a charity team that was approved by the Boston Marathon Commission, and he had an extra bib. Um, so he had an extra spot open for his charity team, and those are very hard to come by. And he called me and said, Bruce, how'd you like to run the Boston Marathon? 
That is amazing. And that answers my questions because I was wondering, it's so hard to get into Boston. How the heck did you do it so fast? It is. So, yeah, so I did not qualify for Boston. That is still a goal of mine, um, but I ran as a charity fundraiser. And so I, re- I, I did fundraising for the Forsyth Institute. Okay, and that's not easy to do, never mind after what you just yeah, went through. it was fun. It, it was well worth it. So if somebody just finds out today that they themselves have cancer, you know, mm-hmm. having to go through preparing yourself for the surgery and to stay strong during it, do you have any tips that you used? Yeah, and I'll be, I'll be really honest. The, uh, the first day, <laughs> um, I spent a lot mm-hmm. of time crying. You know, I did, because at this point I had um, I had sole custody of my boys, and you know, so lots of thoughts run through. You know, if if things don't go well, who takes care of my boys? You know, because um, you know, because of circumstances really beyond her control, their their mother is not capable of providing for them, and you know, so you have all of these yeah. thoughts. So, so first and foremost is, is be real with yourself. Allow yourself to feel the feelings. The, the longer you fight a feeling and push it down or um, beat yourself up for, well, you're not supposed to feel that way. That's yeah. a sign of weakness. Um, what, what you resist persists. Mm-hmm. So the longer you fight it, the longer you're going to have to deal with it. And so I, I allowed myself to grieve. Um, and that, that was really helpful. Um, then, you know, it's, it's about being aware that everything about your reality is ultimately your perception of reality, and it's all the story that you tell yourself about it. And so I, I knew right away I was not, I, I didn't like who I was when I was in my 40s when I was mm-hmm. a victim. And, you know, so I knew that I did not want to be that person again. So, um, so I knew that I, I just wasn't going to tell myself a story that while this isn't the news that I wanted, um, I also know the statistics that unless the cancer has metastasized and spread to my lymph system, the survival rate for prostate cancer is amazingly yeah. high. Um, and I was fortunate, even though I was stage four, the, uh, the cancer had moved outside of my prostate. It had not yet spread to any Mm. other organs and so I was very very fortunate and so my doctors you know they they said we've got to move very very fast you don't have you know weeks to to think about alternative treatment methods and and stuff like this and you know so and and I trusted them I you know I, I consulted a bunch of different doctors and they all sort of agreed that while there are alternative treatment methods um there, mm-hmm. I didn't have time for it, so we had to act now. So, so that that was the biggest thing. But really, practicing mindfulness is what got me through it. Um, one of the the most dangerous things that we can do is forget that the only thing that we really, really have is mm-hmm. right now. Um, it's good to have dreams and goals for tomorrow and next year and, the, and 10 years. And it's good to take action today to make tomorrow a better day. But the bottom line is 
all we have is right this minute. And so I had to remind myself not to spend a lot of time mm-hmm. in the future and to spend almost no time in the past because the past is gone. You can't get it back. I got the phone call. I can't go back and undo that phone call that said I had the yeah. answer. So, there, you know, so there's no way. You can't recraft that story. So the only story you can rewrite is the one that moves you forward. But, but mostly it was just about, okay, what do I need to do today? You know, what are, what are some, I, I know I've got to get, I've got to go through surgery. I've got to, you know, I've got to juggle schedules around who can take my boys to school, who can pack lunches, who can make mm-hmm. meals. Um, my work situation was, was fairly easy. I, um, you know, I, I was able to, you know, just put, push pause on my life. So the, the books that I was writing, I stopped writing. Um, you know, I, so I, I just focused on what do I need to do today, and and that that's my that's my biggest advice. And and that worry, um, you know. So I'm actually I'm actually excited because the uh, the book, the three books that I was writing when I got my diagnosis, they're still on hold. Um, I wound up writing a completely different book um, through my experience, and it's going to be published in uh, hopefully in two weeks. By June fifteenth is really our. Our date um, to, that it will be on the streets, and I'll probably do a big launch maybe around the Fourth oh, wow. of July, and, and do a lot of media promotion about it. But my book is called "Worry No More: Four Steps to Stop Worrying and Start Living," and and it's really just how did I go through this process? Um, you know, I used to be a chronic worrier, and you know, so how did I turn that around? And so, so that's what my next book is all about. So we'll definitely make sure that book gets in the show notes as soon as it's available. Yeah. I think that'll be really helpful. Can you kind of share with everybody maybe a couple of the tips that you share in your book? Yeah, well, sure. It's four four easy steps. Um, the other there's a lot to it, but um, you know the the whole book really revolves around this idea that we are all amazingly creative movie directors. <laughs> You know, Steven Spielberg has got nothing on you, <laughs> Gina. Nothing. You know, and and he's got nothing on me. And and the fact of the matter is that there, Hollywood could never ever make a movie as graphic, as vivid, as detailed, as riveting as the stories we tell ourselves every single day in our heads. The things that we imagine about the future. Yeah, and we write some really scary movies. <laughs> Very true. Right? You know, because, you know, because we, we lay in bed at night and we think about, okay, well, somebody doesn't like me. Well, why don't they like me? Oh, well, this must be. The, and so we concoct the, we, we wind up scripting a movie that just isn't true. Um, and so, so the first step is: it, Have you ever gone into? Are there are there big multiplex cinemas yeah. where you are? Have you ever gone into a, a big multiplex to watch a movie, and you you bought your popcorn and your drink and you sat down, and 15 in, minutes into the movie, you're thinking, "Yuck, I don't like this." And have you ever just gotten up and walked out and walked down the hall? And gone in the door to another movie? No, that's a good idea, though. You can. And I actually asked once. I said, you know, 
do you care which one? And the guy at the taking the ticket says, we don't care. You bought a ticket. You know, as long as you're not sneaking in the back, they don't care what movie oh, you what go see. Um, yeah. So, so I have frequently gotten up and walked down the hall and found a different movie. And I'd said, I'll watch that one huh. instead. And, and so step one in my book is go watch a different movie. And, and more specifically, write a different movie. If you're writing a movie in your head that makes you the victim, that leaves you scared, that leaves you um, out of control, and you're predict you're, the movie is projecting an outcome that you don't want to have happen. So what you're worried about is not what you want in your life, right? And you're afraid that that's what you're going to get, but it's not what you want. And you can just as easily write a different movie. You know, you can write a movie where you're the, you know, where you're the, the princess, the heroine, you know, that where you're brave or, you know, I haven't seen Frozen yet, um, you know, but you can write a movie that's awesome and inspiring. And the likelihood of that movie coming true is just as likely as the horror movie you were writing. And so, so I talk about that. How do, how do we change our thoughts? And, and first of all, you know, I try to instill in you the confidence that you can do it. Um, you, you can control your thoughts. Mind control is a really, really good thing when you're practicing yeah. it on yourself. Uh, so, that, so step one is, is watch a different movie. Step two is move to a different state. Um, you know, so it's these big, bold statements. And I don't mean move to Oregon, you know, so I'm talking about um, how changing physical state. You know, what, what are some things that you can do physically? Because there is this amazing mind body mm-hmm. connection. And, and I love doing this in my coaching practice, but just there's some amazingly crazy things that you just don't think about um, when you're all anxious and upset about something, um, it, at least in my world, my boys know it. <laughs> you know, if I'm upset about something, then my boys can walk in the door from school and within two minutes they can just say, what's wrong, Dad? I'm a lousy poker player. Because our bodies reflect what our emotions are, are feeling. Okay. Now, likewise, if you force your body to make the same kinds of movements as your body would make if you were happy, it will cause you to be happy. So there's a direct correlation. You know, it's a, it's a little silly things like hold a pencil between <laughs> your teeth. You know, this is written up in psychology books. You know, Psych 101 okay, books have this experiment. Put, yeah, yeah, so exactly. Yeah, and, and just like you've got it right, in between your teeth, not between your lips, and, and don't wrap your lips over the, you know, so what it's doing is it's forcing you to use the very same muscles. Now, you could sit there and smile and fake a smile at me, but you have to remember to do it. But just putting the pencil in your mouth, you can go about your day and start working. But in order to hold the pencil in your mouth, the muscles have to maintain that position, and they are the same muscles that you would use to smile. Within five minutes, you will be happier than when you put the pencil in your mouth. That is an awesome so tip. Just it, yeah, just amazing stuff like that. And so then, then I also talk about mindfulness and, and living in the moment. 
Um, and then I also I get into um, a, a faith aspect of it that regardless of, you know, and, and I'm, I'm talking really about faith without any uh, religious dogma on top of it, but to believe that our lives are purposeful, that we were created, that we did not just crawl out of the swamp of primordial <laughs> ooze, that our lives have plan and purpose, that there, um, there are no accidents. And while we might not like the, the stage of the path that we're on right now, if you can trust that the path that you're on is for a purpose, and that purpose is ultimately a good purpose, then it helps you travel that path a whole lot better than if you're fighting it and kicking against it. And, you know, I I can't tell you what the purpose was for my daughter dying. Okay? I, I, I don't know what it is. I, have, I, I know that I am changed because of it. I'm a different person because my daughter passed away. Um, but I know that my life is richer for believing that there was a purpose for her eight days on this planet. And even there was a purpose in the tragic way that she died. You know, because if you believe that that was purely random, then I, for me, I don't want to live in that world where just totally random things can happen. Because if, if there are not purposes, if my life doesn't have purpose and your life doesn't have purpose, then there's absolutely no justification for me to treat you with any level of dignity or respect. You know, so, so I talk about that. You know, so all of these are ways that you can combat worry. Some forms of worry are good. You know, for example, if you're worried that you can't pay the mortgage next month, then that's a warning sign to you to take some different action. Now, if it allows you, if if you take that an extra step and you you let it consume you to the point where you can't function, and then you you don't pay your mortgage next month because you did nothing to prevent it, then that was an unhealthy worry. You know, if I'm driving on the interstate and I see my gas is running low and I I see you know options of where I can get gas and I'm worried that I might not make it to the next gas station, that that can be a good thing because it makes me aware that, you know, or if we're out hiking in the woods with my boys and my boys say, Dad, you look worried. And I say, I'm worried we took the wrong path. You know, let's go back and retrace our steps and, and try a different path. And those are all good forms of worry. Um, because they're they're warning systems that are hooked up to us. So uh, it's like stress. You can't eliminate stress. You can mm -hmm. just manage it. Well, this is true, but managing your worry, will that help manage your stress? Absolutely. They're all connected. Yeah, because when you're because when you're when you're you know, worry is a form of stress and stress causes worry and worry causes stress. So it's hard to know where one starts and the other stops. But, yeah, they're they're all they're all connected, and, and ultimately it's all connected to the story that you, mm -hmm. you're telling yourself. Wow. Well, you're so honest, and you're so open and transparent about your whole life, Bruce. Just <laughs> amaze me. Well, thank you. And uh, this is the first picture interview I've ever done.
you're smiling through almost all of it, and you look so passionate about what you say, and you don't look a day <laughs> over you. 40, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I don't feel a day over 40. That's the frustrating part of it. My brain still thinks I'm like 29. And, yeah, so. Don't we all? There's never a 30th birthday. I know, I know, you know, but, you know, and, uh, you know, our, sometimes our bodies remind us, though, that we're not 29, or, or at least I'm not 29. But, but I'm only 51, and I plan to live to be 100. So That is amazing. So what do you have planned for your future? What do you have imagined in your movie screen? Oh gosh, I have so many more books to write. I my you know my my goal, you know, I I have a purpose statement and a mission statement and I encourage everybody to have one because it it controls um it, it controls how you show up in in any situation. You know, um you know, so e- even when you're just going out for dinner or drinks with friends, um you should have an intention. You know, what do you want to achieve during that social engagement? You know, I had an intention when you and I started this call. I don't know if you did, um, but everything is in line with my purpose statement. And I know that I, when I operate, I know that when I'm operating outside of my purpose, I feel this kind of negative yuck energy about myself, but I, I know that I was created to love, to serve, and to add value to the lives of people. And so it's that simple. You know, when I'm doing that, so whenever I'm, whatever I'm doing, if I'm not doing it out of a, out of love, first and foremost, that, that drives the rest of it. And, and in a way of serving, you know, and, and I'm not talking about being subservient. I'm not talking about slavery. You know, I'm talking about, you know, how can I help you? It's, it's like Zig Ziglar said, you can get anything you want in life if you help enough people get what they want. You know, so that idea of service, you know, can, can I, you know, just making you happy. Can I say something that, that lifts you up or makes you feel better about who you are or feel better about the world in which you live? I have served you. And in doing that, um, hopefully I have added value to your life. Um, you know, now I do that in various ways. I do that through interviews like this. I do this through writing. I do it through my podcast. I do it through, um, through life coaching, through public speaking. So there's lots of different ways to carry out that purpose. Um, but that, but that's the energy that I, I show up with. And you talk about some really honest to God, important issues. I have to, you know, I, I spent way too long lying, lying to myself, lying to other people. And, you know, I'm, I'm done living a lie. And, and I'm, a, I, you know, so the, the more honest that we can be about it. And, and frankly, when I started writing early in my journey, um, I started writing from a perspective of a guy who thought he had it all together. Because I, I had I told myself a story, Bruce, no one is going to want to listen to you unless you really sound ah. like you know what you're talking about. Okay? And so I started writing like I was the expert on various subjects and nobody I think my mother read my blog. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> and and she didn't really even comment on any of it. But I think it was just out of frustration over something that I wrote a blog post five years ago, five or six years ago, 
where I just let it all out. And I almost deleted it after I posted it. You know, I posted it on an afternoon and, you know, later that night I couldn't sleep. I got up the next morning to delete the post and there were a hundred wow. comments on it. It says, Bruce, thank you for being so honest. I thought I was the only one who felt that way. And then I just, you know, I, you, you call it God spoke to me mm-hmm. or, or whatever. Um, you know, I, I just really felt that that's the way it needed to be that I I was I, I am more able to help you by mm-hmm. being vulnerable and being who I really am than trying to be somebody I'm not I spent my entire life trying to be something I wasn't it's a lot of work isn't it <laughs> it's a lot of work but it's you know but now it's easy now it's a lot of work to try to pretend I'm not who I am mm-hmm. absolutely yeah. so are you back to coaching now or are you are you oh yeah to- Oh yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm right back to coaching. I, I kept a handful of my clients through my cancer. Um, yeah, so I'm um, I'm back to doing private coaching. I also started a group coaching community. So I've got 58 people that are part of my um, coaching community. Wow. And so it, it's sort of like a very private Facebook. Um, it's the, the, you know, the website that we all communicate on. We message each other back and forth, but it's, it's so much fun to see a community. You know, I'm in there. I'm at answering questions. I'm posting things and, and people have direct message ability, you know, directly to me to ask me questions, but it's fun to see somebody post a question or, or something that they're struggling with and to see 20 other people other than me coaching that person. And so it's it's literally a, a group coaching scenario, and I just chime in wherever I'm needed to chime in, and it just sort of has taken on a life of its own. And so that's that's been fun. That's amazing. I'm going to link everything up in the show notes at everydayisasecondchance.com. Where's okay. the best places that people can connect with you and see what you're doing and get into some coaching if they would like to? BruceVanHorn.com is the easiest place to to get there, all of the links to the podcast, which is Life is a Marathon, um, lifeisamarathon.com is, is there too. But Bruce Van Horn is the easiest on Twitter, Bruce VH. Um, on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Bruce VH. But every, if you go to brucevanhorn.com, that's, that's the hub. All right. So, so it's all right there. Um, Perfect. And uh, do you have a favorite book that you would like to? recommend uh, aside from the one that you're going to have coming out very soon you know there's so many books I, i've got some books that are absolute must reads okay and and i've actually got a very very if you want to see what i read what what i put in my brain i'm a voracious reader um now i have to qualify that um my boys say dad you don't read books Oh. I listen. I I listen to audiobooks. Oh, perfect. Plug for Audible here. Audible. I love right? exactly. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, I love audiobooks, and you know because I I'm often busy with my with my hands. I'm often driving them around or cooking dinner or or things like that or out running, um, but my ears are often very open, and so I'm constantly feeding my brain. Nevertheless, to answer your question, so at BruceVanHorn.com, there's a, a tab that says Reading List. Uh-huh. And so, Perfect. So the, the newest, actually, I've got four books that I've read recently, and I haven't updated my list. But um, I think absolutely everybody on the planet needs to read The Four Agreements by Don Miguel Ruiz. Okay, super simple, short book. 
um, that talks about mindset, talks about not taking things personally, about not making assumptions, about being impeccable with your word, um, mostly being honest to yourself first and foremost, and then just doing your best. So those are the four agreements. Um, in the fiction category, everybody has to read The Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. Um, Alchemist, got, I haven't read that yet. Alchemist by Paulo Coelho. You absolutely have to read it. It's a parable about pursuing one's dreams and all of the things that will happen to you if you really set out to pursue the life that you know you're capable of living. And so it, it's, it, he encounters hardships. He encounters um, great success and then becomes complacent in that success. And so it, it's a wonderful, wonderful parable. Um, so the language in uh, Paulo Coelho is just an amazing, um, just an amazing writer. So, so those, um, from practical points of view, um, if you ever think that you've got a really, really hard life and you want some comparison, you've got to read um, Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. I'm halfway yeah. through that one. Yeah, you just got to read it. Um, so, and, and then, um, and then it's, it's a massive book. Um, he just published a new version of it, but Jack Canfield's The Success Principles. Yeah, re- highly recommend The Success Principles. Uh, well, thank you, Bruce. I'll make sure all of that's in the show notes. So if people are running or driving, they don't have to worry about trying to write that down right now. Yeah. yeah that's but, a great recommendation. But start with The Alchemist and uh, and The Four Agreements. They're fun reads. They're, yeah. Yeah, the other, yeah, Victor Frankl's not a fun read. And, and Jack Canfield has fun sections in it, but it's, it's just, it's a lot of stuff. Um, it's, it's a, yeah. yeah. I had nightmares when I read, well, I'm still reading it, but the first half of that book, Man's Search for Meaning, gave me nightmares for days. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, it's not as graphic as some of the Holocaust accounts. I mean, Night by Elie Wiesel is is pretty gruesome, and, and even Corey Ten Boom's books, um, you know, are tough. But, um, but I really like the way mm-hmm. um, Viktor Frankl came out of it. He, he came out mentally stronger than yeah. when he went in. And, and that's that's what he discovered. He, he discovered it wasn't the physically strong who were able to survive the camp. Mm-hmm. It was the mentally strong, you know, and, and this resiliency of you know, letting go of the way you thought life was supposed to be. Yes. And so life didn't turn out the way you were supposed it was supposed to in your story, in the movie that you had created. Now what? Do you just sit on the floor and throw a pity party in the tantrum and say, I want my life back? Good luck with that. (laughs) Absolutely. Wow, we have some construction outside. This is perfect time to wrap up. The huge cement truck just pulled up. Nice. Can you leave us with a few words of wisdom before we say goodbye or any message that you might like to share? Love yourself. Just, you know, life is a great place to, to live. Um, you know, this world is amazing. You are amazing. You know, if you need a miracle in your life right now, and, and a lot of people are in places where they just need a miracle, go look in a mirror. You are a miracle. That's beautiful, Bruce. We'll leave, we'll leave it there. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate you, you being on the show. All right. You take care. 
You too. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Radio for the most positive and uplifting time on the radio. So tune in again with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio.